All right, welcome to another episode of Old School Thoughts, and thank you for all of the support that you give us. I'm Frank Goodman. And Martha. Martha, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing fine. We've had a cold day here in Columbus. What is the weather like there in Florida? We were lucky today. It was 77 degrees, oh, man. which is chilly for us because we say anything below 80 right. is winter. Well, it's been so 55 degrees here. <laughs> well, I'm going to send you some uh, Florida sunshine. <laughs> you know. But no humidity now. Right. Okay. So, so last week, we talked about a cup of sugar. Right. The last episode, we talked about a cup of sugar. And you said earlier, it kind of stood on its own. We had a lot of interest, a lot of feedback. Uh, I really want to thank the listeners for now sending notes, attaching notes to the episodes themselves so people can read those notes. But I received an email from one of our cousins that listened to A Cup of Sugar. And I'm not going to diverge her name. She, I asked her, you know, could I read it if I did not? disclose her name and she agreed but I really would like for the audience to hear what she had to say concerning a cup of sugar so she started great off uh, pardon me I said that's a great idea okay so she started off by saying hey good morning cousin Frank I pray this email finds you and your family well thank you for your recent podcast it gave me a lot to think about It gave me a flashback to a distant experience. I can certainly relate to borrowing in the community that I grew up in as a youth. It wasn't something my mother did or allowed, but it was undoubtedly something our neighbors practiced. I can recall my mom saying, we don't borrow in this house. If we don't have it, we do without. It was a matter of pride reflecting on how she grew up being raised by cousins and aunts. She was on the other hand generous to individuals who needed things and borrowed without hesitation. My mom, however, was in the habit of bartering. I can recall a personal experience I had in Maryland. My former mother-in-law borrowed from neighbors quite frequently. Hence, my son, whom she babysat or for, hold on, babysat for, believes this practice acceptable. One afternoon after I arrived from work, I was met by a neighbor who approached me with the question, do you know your son borrowed salt from me? I responded, no. I can't imagine why, because we have salt in the house. Of course, I apologized to her as my face flushed with embarrassment. I entered my house, called my son, and located the salt I knew we had stored in our kitchen cupboard. I immediately marched over to my neighbor's house and showed her the box of salt that I knew we had. To respond to the comment I believe Martha made, 
we no longer have the sense of connectedness we had back in the day. We are perhaps too proud to express that need to our neighbors. My church is in the process of trying to restore that sense of connection, but I know it's a process that will take developing trust and knowing that there are no strings attached attached to generosity. It's a godly expectation. So what do you think about that, Martha? I think that's a beautiful note, and it brings back memories about giving, mm-hmm. you know, from my own experience. You know, I originally am from New York, mm-hmm. and I've settled in Florida since I retired. Right. But the church that I belonged to in New York was a church that had its um, roots in the South. And so we always had what we called a food bank that we did every Saturday where we gave goods, foods, canned goods to the neighborhood people who were in need. And I thought that that was the way that all churches did, actually, until I moved away from New York to find that that wasn't something that was done anywhere else uh, that was, you know, in the areas that I lived. It brings back that thought that we need to be more open with each other. And that doesn't mean that someone should take advantage of the situation, nor does it mean that we should ignore one another. But we have to find ways to channel an opening where we start to communicate with each other better. And I think what she was talking about is that communication. I was amused that, you know, the son thought that this is what you do. You just borrow. <laughs> you know, so he, he wanted to borrow salt, even though there was some in the, in the, clo- in the uh, cabinet. I thought that was interesting, you know. But you notice that she said she felt embarrassed because she knew she had salt, and she grew up in a family that said you don't borrow. You know, I somewhat grew up in a family where we didn't borrow a lot, but we borrowed amongst relatives. So we didn't borrow from neighbors per se, but if my relative was coming and there's something was needed, we would feel free to say, bring it. You know, bring this item and we'll, you know, that'll make the meal come together. So I think that's a, it's a good, a good way of looking at how things used to be and how we might transition to a new version of that going forward. Well, I think we have kind of transitioned into a, a new way of, of requesting a cup of sugar. Mm-hmm. And I think that is requesting a favor. That's right. And, and I'm saying that because one thing I have learned, you know, as an entrepreneur or just a person with different skills, mm-hmm. a lot of times we get caught where people don't want to speak with you. They don't, they don't want to talk to you. They don't want to do anything with you. But once they find out that you hold some talent right. or you have something that they need, they come to you, and especially if they are from the community. Right. Now, people outside the community, they're willing to pay them whatever they ask for. They're ready to, they're willing to meet the requirement. But when they ask you and they ask us in the community, there's always a cup of sugar, which I mean, what can you give me? <laughs> what can I borrow from you? 
Can, but what we're can, missing, can I borrow Frank, your talent? Yes, but what we're missing, Frank, is in the old days, it was that barter system. It was that, that barter system, right. It wasn't that you just took something and didn't give something back. Right. It was always expected that at a later point in time, you would repay that gift. But what I'm saying, Martha, is that that transition may not be the best transition. Right. But we have adopted a transition. And that transition, on a lot of occasions, is based on the fact that we don't really want to pay people in our community what we are willing to pay other people outside of the community. Look, we and when it comes to people within the community, you want to deal. You want to start yes. telling people that you don't have enough money. You want to give them right. all the reasons why you want a discount. Right. And well, that that is a system of saying, can I borrow a cup of sugar? So that, you know, I mean. But that's not really the system of borrowing a cup of sugar. Okay. A sugar implies that when I need a cup of sugar or I need something else, mm -hmm. you will be there to give it to me. Mm. But what we're dealing with in the neighborhoods now is give it to me and I'm not going to see you ever again to pay it back. Well, it may mean that every time I need something, I'm going to come back to you again. But that doesn't work because yeah. they'll wear, wear out their welcome, won't they? Okay. So we, we have talked about this this cup of sugar. I Right. And first, I want to apologize for, you know, stumbling over the article, the letter, reading it back. You know, I've had a surgery on my eyes, so I always have to kind of angle myself the right way to read something and make sure that the light hit the screen correctly. But I think the message got across. I think the feedback that you gave, you know, definitely was great. But I would like to ask you another question, though. We cover a lot of things during the week. And I want to ask you, let's talk about something that has bothered you, something that has gotten your attention, something you feel that we need to talk about. I think, you know, and we talked about it briefly before the podcast, mm -hmm. but I often go on to certain sites that are designated for people of African-American descent. Okay. And it's a recent phenomena that we have so many educational sites that are popping up. Mm -hmm. But what bugs me is that how people who are not African-American, not all people, but some people, feel the need to go onto these sites, look at what's there, and then decide that they are going to change how you think. I'll give you a perfect example. Young man today on Facebook put up a picture of cowboys of color, of mm. African-American descent. Mm. Okay? And he made a comment, right or wrong, he made a comment that if you were black, you were a cowboy. But if you were white, you were a cattleman. Mm. Now, I can't verify if that's true or not, but I don't think... For me, looking at the picture, I wasn't interested in what his words were. I was interested in the fact that somebody had an amazing picture of eight cowboys posing for that picture. Mm -hmm. And they were black. Someone decided to come in 
and voice their opinion about how we are always trying to make the narrative fit our own thinking Mm. and how we're reaching for misinformation to fit that narrative. And what is that? And we should be more cautious about spreading misinformation. Mm. Well, that, that particular comment really, really sent me into a place because I, it was like you throwing down that glove for a challenge. Mm. And I, I love a good fight. Mm. You know, and I went back and I said, look, reality check. Cowboys are the lowest paying people in the West. They, they came from all nationalities. They were indigenous people, they were Mexicans, and they were African Americans. And I said, the photo is relevant. So what you think about how the word cowboy came about isn't really important. Hmm. You know, and that the, the history book that I grew up on, and I'm sure the history book that you grew up on, was all written by people who were not African American or Native American or any race other than Caucasian. Mm-hmm. And because they wrote the book, they wrote it so that they always stand out as being on top of everyone else. And we took all of that information in as children, but as adults, we don't have to take that information in. But they didn't only write the book. They made the movie. That's right. They made the movie. Mm -hmm. They wrote the narrative. Mm -hmm. And the narrative said the only important people are white people who are in charge. Mm -hmm whether it be cattlemen or cowboys. You know, I just went back and I said, you know, you're, you're fixating on a term about what the original term of cowboys, and this person went through this whole thing about it came from vaqueros, from Spanish, and that's where they get the name of cowboys. And then it just started to evolve into, I bet you believe all people in Africa are one black group too. Mm. Afrocentric misinformation all over social media. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I don't think all black people are one people. In fact, there's 3,000 cultures and groups and tribes in Africa. Mm -hmm. So why would I think that they're all one people? Mm -hmm. Okay. The need for people who are Caucasian to try to dictate and to determine how you should think is still prevalent. I don't know why, Frank, but I found that for me, all of the information that's out there, so much of it about white people, nobody challenges. But the moment a site that's devoted to African-Americans or people of color or people who are from the diaspora If they put something up, then every white person, not every, but some white people feel the need to call it misinformation, refer to it as being something to do with Afrocentrism. Mm -hmm. Well, they don't talk about Eurocentrism. Mm -hmm. And that's really where it pisses me off. Right. And I told the guy, I said, look, at some point, you better watch your pressure because you're going to blow something. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and I can't believe you're saying that African-American, there were no African-American cowboys. Mm. You know, at some point you have to be able to respond and challenge people and shut them down when they are saying things 
that are contrary to your uh, sight that's uplifting you. Hmm. I don't believe whether that person misspoke about what the meaning of a cowboy was, that was irrelevant to the fact that the picture spoke for itself. You know, this is something I think we need to train our children, train ourselves on how to critically look at what somebody is saying to you. Because what he was doing is trying to put down anything that was positive and uplifting for black people. You know, and at some point he wanted to refer to me by my first name, which is a no-no, because I just simply went back and said, I don't know you and you don't know me, and you're not permitted to use my first name. Mm. So, you know, you have to always be on top of things that are published because there's someone who wants to shoot down this idea that we are finding out what our history really means and what our history really is. Now, as I listen to you talk about this situation, it comes mm-hmm. back to, it goes back to what we've talked about once before, and it has to do with, are we prepared to respond to issues? Right. Are we knowledgeable enough to respond to issues? And I think that is what is critical. We have to be, we have to put ourselves in a position where we're able to defend history. And and to be able to challenge what someone is saying, but it has to be personal. Yes, and it should be personal for us. It, it has to be personal. I mean, if you look at the Jewish community, it's personal. It's, yes. Regardless of how it's presented, it's personal. They present themselves in a personal way. If you do something to one segment, regardless of where they are throughout their diaspora, it represents all. It represents mm-hmm. all. That's right. And they have a way of defending it. They have a way of making it personal. Because they will come together and they will combat it head for head on. They will go straight at it as a group. Now That's something we don't do. Right. Now, the Asian com- community has picked up on that. And mm-hmm. there, if something happens, they are presenting themselves as you have... You are attacking all of us. You are are doing this. It's personal. That's right. That's right. We are, in a lot of cases, we are gathering information and we are repeating history based on events. Right. But because we do not have a strong interest in genealogy, and I mean just we as a whole, Mm -hmm. do not have an interest in genealogy placing yourself and your family into the timelines of African-American history, American history, African history, slavery history, you know, throughout the diaspora. Because we are not interested in those things, then we are not prepared to argue the situation personally. And I was telling you once before you know, it's personal to me because I always place my great-grandfather, who was born in 1833, during the period of slavery. That would have been 32 years remaining in that period, in that timeline of history. And so it's personal to me. I think about my grandmother. 
I think about my father. I think about my mother. I think about my ancestors who have dealt with so many things within the timelines of history. So when I approach people, I'm bringing those ancestors with me. It's not, I'm just not talking. I'm bringing them with me because they are the people that I am defending. Does that make sense? They are your living history. Right. You know, like you, my great-grandmother was born 1810. Mm. And what always strikes me as interesting is that even though we have that brick wall where we can't really go back too far Mm. uh, with our meter, you know, with our ancestry research, if you think about it, your great-grandfather and my great-grandmother had a mother and father. And if nothing more, their parents would have been, hypothetically, 20 years old when they were born. Mm -hmm. So already you're talking about 18, 13, and I'm talking about 17, 80, or 90. Mm -hmm. We forget to look at the timeline of history. Mm -hmm. And we have to start looking at historical events in our family lives and piecing them together in a timeline. Hmm. We cannot continue to only look at my, my history when I was in the 90s and my mother when she was in the 60s, and, and that's as far as you go. Right. Because you're missing out on three-quarters of what your family's done. Hmm. Today, I watched a funeral ceremony for my niece's husband, an amazing man. And I learned today he had four bronze stars. Hmm. Four. Most people don't get one. Right. He had four. That is an incredible legacy. Hmm. Something you should be proud of. Hmm. And he never spoke about it. Every time I've talked to him, he's never gone into what he did. We have so many heroes in our families. Mm. Even the person that didn't earn a star is a hero because that person survived and you are here because of them. To me, my great-grandmother is a hero because she went through 50 years of slavery and 50 years plus free. Hmm. I don't know how you endure 50 years of captivity. Right. Because I am blessed to have been born free. Right. But we have to start acknowledging these family members, acknowledging their history, acknowledging how important they were to the history of America, their work that they toiled in the soil, and whatever jobs they had made people wealthy, and those wealthy families exist today on the backs of those people. Okay, Martha. That's the history. All yes. right. It's that time again. It's that time. I'm going to say to our listeners, please be patient with us. We love you. We are happy that you always respond to us that you listen to our podcast, please continue to do so. But Frank and I are on a quest Mm. to make history known and to give respect to those ancestors. 
so that we can say their names proudly. On that note, we're going to say thank you for listening. We love you. We love you. And we're always going to ask you to be good. And be good.